0: During our um, Mission Awareness Week recently ended, Malcolm in his, uh, I thought, very engaging sermons took us uh, to chapters 11 and 13 of the book of Acts. And this left me wondering, well, doesn't anything happen in Acts chapter 12? And when I peered in for a moment, I discovered that it was a chapter about walking through the valley of the shadow of death. When I peered in, I discovered people are dying in there, but God is still doing his work. One of the themes that rings uh, right through The book of Acts is that an often crushing weight rested on the early church. The progress of the word, which so clearly marks the movement of the story, comes at great cost. So what I'd like to do is uh, have a look at Acts chapter 12 over my uh, three sermon uh, series, uh, beginning at verse one. Acts chapter 12, verse one, reading from the NIV, it says it was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. The first uh, point I want to make here is that the gospel produces enemies. Chapter 12, verse 1, public animosity toward the church is because of the events which are described in Acts chapter 11. Uh, When it says about this time, it invites us to ask about what time? And it takes us back into the events that took place there where the church in Antioch has thrown the doors open to the Gentiles. So after having settled into something like an uneasy coexistence with Jews who called Jesus the Christ, Now a new reality is emerging in the Jerusalem uh, uh, context. The sect, this deviant group of Jews, was breaking down barriers with Gentiles. And in doing so, they're erasing Jewish privilege. They're uh, threatening the the nation uh, at a political and religious level. And so this requires a religious and even a political response. In other words, the gospel itself has led the Christians onto a battleground. So my second point is, because the gospel produces enemies, Christ's proclaimers have enemies. Earlier, the uh, persecution, the oppression in the book of Acts had been religious oppression. Uh, This led right up to Stephen's execution. Uh, This generated a, a feeding frenzy as Saul begins to persecute the church. Then Paul's converted and the word spread. And that was about seven years ago. There's been a time of, let's say, relatively stable um, uh, Christian uh, growth and life in Jerusalem. But now the persecution that comes along is political. Uh, I think of it as a stage three persecution. It's like that old analogy. Maybe you've heard this before. If I wanted to uh, turn Parramatta Road into a garden, and I think we could all agree that it would be better if Parramatta Road were a garden. Well, what would the consequences be? I'd want to see uh, trees, flowers, vegetables, and we all know that this would be a contribution to our city. So imagine if a group of us went over to Parramatta Road, and we started to dig up the surface so that we could begin this, this improvement project. Well, uh, the first thing that would happen is that a crowd of motorists would gather around and say, hey, you can't do that here. Uh, there's a serious problem. Uh, you're interfering with our uh, transportation. Stage two goes beyond these random motorists to the, the businesses that are in the area who say, hey, you're disrupting our livelihood. There's a cost that you're bringing to us, and we are unwilling to bear that cost, so you need to put a stop to this. And then once this happens, it doesn't take long before stage three, uh, the police arrive, the authorities arrive, and they put a stop to the work that we're engaged in. And so Parramatta Road remains the most polluted part of Sydney and has the worst air quality in Australia. That's the sort of progression that we see going on in the book of Acts. Persecution in the New Testament often follows a similar form of progression. And now we're talking about King Herod, who is Herod Agrippa. We're talking about the grandson of Herod the Great and Mariamne. Uh, nephew of Herod the Tetrarch, that man who was involved in the execution of Jesus. Agrippa, uh, well, he, he's got a pretty good situation in some ways, because he was recognized by Claudius as payback. So Claudius uh, was helped by Agrippa to become emperor of Rome. His his schoolboy friend, Herod, had helped him uh, get the throne. So in that sense, he's in a, uh, a good situation. He's got the emperor's backing. And Uh, as king over uh, all of Herod's, uh, the the former Herod's territories, Agrippa now has a stable political environment, and yet he's out for blood. Now, no reason is given for this. It says uh, King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. We're not quite sure why, but what we do know is that the result is stated with clarity. Verse 3 tells us in plain language that this is a really good PR move. So now you've got King Herod Agrippa who has the support of the emperor and he's got the support of the people. In other words, he's in a pretty safe and secure situation. He's uh, um, unthreatened, you might say. Now it's hard to know exactly when the event that we're looking at takes place, except that Herod Agrippa returned from Rome in AD 41. And so we're probably looking at an event that takes place in the northern spring of uh, A.D. 43. The um, outbreak of persecution seems to have begun early in Agrippa's arrival. And so uh, these good PR moves, namely persecuting these Christians, would have helped him solidify his rule and build toward the future. As a result, again, he's got the support of the emperor and the people, and was destined for a long reign. Well, that's Herod. Verse 2 introduces James. He had James, the brother of John. That's the introduction. This is James, the brother of John. It's not James, the son of Alphaeus, and it's not James, the brother of Jesus, the one who becomes leader of the church in Jerusalem and writes the epistle, which we call James. This is the son of Zebedee, one of the sons of thunder. So he's one of the big three. Uh, Peter, James, and John are insiders to well, really significant things in Jesus' own ministry. So they see the raising of Jairus' daughter. They see the transfiguration. They see Jesus in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane. And John, his brother, has, as you know, a long and uh, illustrious career as an apostle. But this is all we ever hear of James. He is the first apostle to be martyred. And I wonder how you respond to this. Uh, How do you fold it into your own belief system, especially when we live in a Christian world that often promises that all your troubles will go away when you choose to follow Jesus. We learn virtually nothing of the life and death of this man. Does James die because God didn't love him as much as he loved his brother? Is it because James lacked faith and so he cut himself off from the blessings that are available uh, in the gospel? Earlier in Acts, we know that the apostles had rejoiced to be counted worthy to suffer for Jesus' sake. Was James rejoicing then? Is he rejoicing now? And where does this leave the church that knew James and presumably loved him as a member of their spiritual family? How do they deal with the loss? How do they deal with the fear that would have come to them? Now, the early church wasn't naive. They couldn't afford to be. But they had been told by Jesus, and James would have heard it himself, uh, as recorded in Luke chapter 9, verse 22, isn't it, that the Son of Man was going to be killed. And in the next breath, Jesus says that if they want to be his disciples, they need to take up their cross and follow him. They were a community who had already reckoned with death. It says, though there's an archway above the church, And chiseled up there are words that say something like, only the dead are found here. In that context, it would be pretty hard to run a seeker service. Maybe some of you come from a political situation where the most ridiculous thing you can imagine is a seeker service. Because people are arrested, beaten, and sometimes killed just for being there. In other words, for James, the journey was mapped out from the beginning. And the destination was death. So to join this church was to join a community that already had come to terms with the meaning of death to self. And even death of the self. So what would you do if someone in your congregation has been arrested and killed for being a Christian? Would you persevere to the end? What if someone you love, a parent, a spouse, a child, has been killed for their confession of Christ? How would you hold up? And I think for most of us, maybe all of us, the answer is, well, we really don't know. We haven't experienced this sort of sifting out. But throughout history, Christians in various places places have had to answer these hard questions. So does this relate to your world at all? Most of us have rarely faced persecution for our confession. But it may be that there are some here today who have had to count the cost. And there may be some here who are uh, from or will be going to serve in a country or region that doesn't tolerate those who declare the lordship of Christ. My third point is this. Because Christ's proclaimers have enemies, Peter is about to die. Verses 3 and 4. James was killed in such a way that we see the authority and terror-inducing power of the king. Luke doesn't have a lot to say about James, but he says enough that our eyes can adjust to the darkness. He says enough that we can see where the story is going. Uh, sometimes when my, when my kids were younger and we might be watching something on television, there would be one of those scenes that is entirely preparatory. Uh, you've got the heroic forces that are being sent to rescue somebody. Maybe they're on uh, some, some sort of uh, a police van or they're in some sort of airplane. And there's a secondary figure, somebody who hasn't really featured in the story in any significant way, uh, played no role uh, in the, the movie to that point. And he pulls out a picture of his wife and child. It's always a young child. And so that we don't miss a point, someone leans over and says something like, fine looking family. And because I don't want my young child to be sort of overly traumatized by uh, the experience, I would lean over and say, he's going to die. <laughs> And he always does. It's a convention of storytelling. And Luke is preparing us. He is trying to tell us that Herod is king, and to be sovereign is to kill who you want, when you want. The death of James is almost entirely incidental to the book of Acts. The primary reason for it being placed here is to tell us that the sword of Herod is not going to be denied. And now, well, he has arrested Peter. Peter is going to die. There will be no legal appeal. There will be no last minute call from the governor with a stay of execution. Nothing is going to stop the death of Peter. The leader of the church of Jerusalem, the one who right through the book of Acts has been uh, uh, leading this ministry of the Christ. Nothing is going to stop him from being executed by the unchallenged king. Only this king isn't unchallenged. There is another king and another throne. Acts 12 is the story of two kings who have gone to battle. Only one will be left standing. As this chapter unfolds over the next few weeks, we'll see who wins in the end. Let's pray. Our Father, you've taught us that the Savior's burden is simultaneously light and is in the shape of a cross. We pray that you would build us into fit laborers whose words, life, and conduct align with the cross-shaped death and life message that we preach. And we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.